Welcome to Writer Writer Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer Writer Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.com. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire will begin featuring interviews with agents and editors in the month of June. To access this exclusive content and have the chance to pose your own questions to guest agents and editors, support the podcast through Patreon. Visit www.patreon.com forward slash Mindy McGinnis to learn more or check out the link in the episode credits. Today's guest is Sarah Rash, author of the New York Times bestselling YA fantasy trilogy Snow Like Ashes and the upcoming Stream Raiders series. Sarah joined me today to talk about how the concept for her Snow Like Ashes series was originally something she worked on as a teenager and how intensely personal books can be for the author. Dessa has a plan. Work hard, get perfect grades, go to art school. Then she doesn't get in, and everything changes. Fans of Morgan Matson and Sarah Dessen will love this story about chasing your dreams and falling in love along the way. Pre-order Your Destination is on the Left by Lauren Spieler today. Listeners are always anxious to hear about successful query journeys, so why don't you tell us about how you landed your agent? So the agent that I currently have is Mackenzie Brady-Watson. She is with Stuart Kachevsky Literary, and she is actually the second agent I've had. I got my first agent for a totally different book (laughs) than the one that I got her with. I ended up deciding to switch, just professional decision. So I got her through the slush pile, just querying. Uh, The project that I queried her with was a YA paranormal romance because it fit the, (laughs) the trend at the time. Looking back, like that book will never, ever see the light of day. It's just so off brand for me (laughs) and so Mm -hmm. off genre. But she loved it, I think, because it was set in her hometown and she didn't get a lot of those. Yay for Philadelphia, because that's the one thing that linked us together. Like I said, the book that I queried her with was not a book that ever sold. We tried to send it out. We tried on submissions for a couple months and it just had no bites at all. It was right on the downslope of when paranormal mm-hmm. was starting to kind of fizzle out. It had Snow Like Ashes in the back burner. And so I kind of polished it up and made it submission ready and we sent it out. So how many books had you written before you landed an agent? Was that paranormal romance your very first attempt at a novel? Oh, no, no, no. I had written um, a couple quote-unquote novel things when I was much, much younger. They were very short. I called them novels, but they were like 20,000 words max. Growing up, the first novel-length work I ever wrote was a very, very early draft of Snow Like Ashes. Totally different from what the book ended up being. I loved it as a teen. I poured my heart and soul into it. I wrote the whole trilogy back when I was a teenager. It was, again, it was totally different from what it is now. So I tried for a long time to get that published and that never went anywhere. So I switched gears and wrote actually a very, very early, very different version of These Rebel Waves. Tried to get that published. And that was the first book that got me my first agent. But that version of These Rebel Waves did not sell at all. It was so bad. (laughs) Looking back, it was so bad. So switching gears. And once that didn't do well, I switched to what I call ghost book, my paranormal novel. 
and that got me my second agent and also did not sell. <laughs> and then I went back to Snow Like Ashes and redid it from complete scratch. And then that sold. I love what you're saying about how you went through two agents and shopped multiple <laughs> projects without yeah. garnering a deal. I think that's really important for aspiring writers to hear because a lot of us, and I was the same way. I looked at the publishing process as a ladder that you only go up. So you get an agent and then you sell a book and then you get published and it doesn't work that way. You can get an agent and not sell. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Publishing is definitely not a ladder. It's more of like an elevator, I think, (laughs) where you can go up a floor and then down three floors and then like up two floors and down five floors. It's just like, oh my God, it's just up and down and up and down. And it's so unpredictable. Being fluid helps, but you know, I I say that, but of course you're absolutely heartbroken when a a project doesn't sell. And when I had to leave my first agent, like it was just a lot, a lot of stress and a lot of really emotional things that at the time were really horrible, but in retrospect, they're absolutely the right moves for my career. So it's just, it's really hard to balance art with business side of things. It's a roller coaster. (laughs) It is. It's also, it could be an elevator. It could be a a ladder with like rotten rungs, maybe. Oh yeah, there you go. You step on one and you fall Uh, back down. (laughs) You're probably bleeding and punctured. That sounds a lot more accurate, actually getting splinters (laughs) and thinking you're going to fall to your death, you know? Right, right. Lots of screaming. Yeah, that's publishing. I also like what you're saying about how you wrote a novel early on that does not fit your brand under any stretch of the imagination whatsoever. Cause I am similar and listeners of the podcast are going to be like, Oh, she's going to talk about that book again. But I have have a book that I wrote, gosh, probably 20 years ago now, maybe not Uh quite that many, but a lot. And it is X-Files episode that John Hughes would have directed. I too was trying to sell this when paranormal Mm -hmm. was right on the brink of being a corpse and so I didn't get picked up it's fine because now my brand is totally different from what it probably would have been if that had Mm. been my first book but I don't know if that book will ever see the light of day now though because my brand is so different yeah I mean I've seen a lot of authors take really big brand leaps like um was it Stephanie Perkins just came out with a horror novel for goodness sake I mean it can happen but I'm not sure what the recipe has to be for it to be successful. I, don't know I think I'd you be have to enough. be Stephanie Perkins. Okay. So I want to talk about Snow Lake Ashes. That was your debut. It's a high fantasy set in a kingdom where four different cultures are based on the seasons. It caught on big time hitting the New York times. You wrote that book as a teenager. The initial concept came to you as a yes. teenager. So yeah. wasn't that ridiculously vindicating to see this idea catch on with so many people and really like carve a spot for you adult Sarah Rash and you're like oh but that was me as a teenager that did this that's gotta feel good oh my so many emotions oh my god yeah very surreal very vindicating like you said name and emotion and I felt it over the course of this trilogy it was incredibly personal too having this snow gashes be a book that I had that was so close to me as a teenager because I put a lot of teenage Sarah into it especially mm-hmm. into the main character people always ask like well, which character do I see myself in the most and it's without a doubt Mira because she was the person I wanted to be as a kid, as a teenager, mm-hmm. she spoke her mind and she was incredibly loyal and just unrelenting and stubborn and fierce. And you're still thinking back on her story and how far we've come. And the fact that I was able to make her story real and publish it and have it turn into something. I know most of the time, that's not what happens with these kind of books. They're your training novels kind of, and you just never mm-hmm. see them again. So how old were you when you whacked that out the first time? 
So I started writing the very first draft of Snow Like Ashes when I was like 13 or 14. Mm -hmm. And then I just kind of worked on it on and off throughout high school and into like early college. Then I wrote a full version of the trilogy and it had like totally different characters and a totally different arc, a labor of love for much of my formative years. I think that's awesome. I've talked about this before on the show too. I wrote a very early draft of The Female of the Species when I was 19. Oh my God. Yeah. And as you're saying, it has nothing to do with the book that is on the shelves today, but that is validating for me to say my teenage mind had this concept and it's Mm -hmm. a saleable concept. Like I had to be an older writer. I had to be a more experienced writer in order to deliver it. But what I produced as a teenager, the core of it had value. It's really validating to teen writers. You know, they feel hopeless about the stuff they're writing and God, no, nothing I wrote as a teenager, I look back on and regret. I think every single version of it is worthwhile. <laughs> Things you do in your teenage years absolutely can have effect and weight later on. I support <laughs> entirely what you're saying about writing as a teen and letting teenagers know that we didn't start out as these polished individuals with these amazing books. I, all the time I have teenagers talk to me about writing and be like, yeah, I just don't feel like what I'm producing is any good. And I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter. Yeah. It actually might not be good. Yeah. And that's fine. What I wrote when I was a teen, that first draft of the female of the species. Oh mm-hmm. Lord, it's bad. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it has to be. I mean, you have to let yourself have those terrible, terrible drafts and the terrible ideas. And that's just, yeah. that's just the process. It's art. Oh, agreed entirely. Coming up, Sarah on how to market yourself as a debut author generating buzz online, and taking that responsibility onto your own shoulders. Also, the power of cover art and how a cover's job is to draw in the reader to the story. 1862. Louise travels to Montreal, hoping to join the Queen's Musketeers, but her plans quickly go awry when she stumbles on Lord de Winter's plot to kill the Queen and overthrow the monarchy. Now, with the help of her new friends, Louise must save the crown, stop the evil Cardinal Lefebvre, and keep Quebec out of the civil war raging to the south. All for One by Sophia Beaumont is a gender-bent alt-history twist on the Three Musketeers, available June 18th. You had this experience where your debut just Mm -hmm. sold like hotcakes and and really (laughs) took off and that was amazing so not only had an origin point in your teenage years but it also broke you out as a YA writer that can be a blessing and a curse as a debut (laughs) so can you talk about that a little bit of course, everyone always hopes that their book will do well. I mean, you don't do this industry hoping your book will flop. So okay. <laughs> you always hope that your book will be well-received and well-liked, and especially a book that I put so much of myself into. Every book is personal, but this one was just like piece of teenage Sarah's soul. So having people like it and receive it well, um, that's been the most exciting part of this is getting to meet readers who related to Mira as well and you know seeing like fan art and stuff has just been like mind-boggling the whole process is just like uh, still to this day I see things happen and I'm just like seriously this is like you just can't wrap your mind around it because you hope it'll happen but you don't know how to prepare yourself for the things mm-hmm. the good things that happen so you just kind of sit there and have to enjoy it because <laughs> it's such a crazy ride and crazy industry and I mean you see people come and go on a monthly basis in this industry with these different books and things. So you just got to be grateful that when your book sticks around and does well. I was talking with Beth Revis at the beginning of May, and she was talking about how Across the Universe was the 11th book 
that she wrote and queried. She was querying for 10 years. And (gasps) Across the Universe comes out and, of course, like, completely blew up and was this amazing reception for it. She had no concept of what the middle ground experience would be. Mm -hmm. She only knew with that first release what it's like to hit the NYT. And so she mentioned that she was speaking to a friend whose book was coming out and was saying, oh, well, you know, this will happen, this will happen, this will happen, and and giving her advice that later on she realized was not the normal experience. So did you have anything like that where that great start at the gate later on maybe set you up for some expectations that weren't necessarily always there or anything like that? Uh, Well, I was lucky enough before Snow Like Ashes came out to have a lot of writer friends who had books come out like two or three years before mine. So I saw them go through the process. Mm -hmm. So I knew generally what to expect. For instance, I think a lot of people go into publishing expecting like all the marketing to be done for them. Uh, (laughs) And so they get to the publication day and nothing's been done because of the marketing falls on the author. Luckily, I went in knowing that I would have to shoulder a lot of that, like just social media and stuff and campaigns and whatnot. And I like doing that. So I prepared a lot of that myself. Like I had a street team prepared and uh, various giveaways and contests and whatnot. I think that helped start a lot of the buzz about it. I hope that I went into it with a realistic expectations for what to expect from mm-hmm. publishing. Tried not to expect that everything would be done. If I could do it, I did do it. Marketing is such a weird, finicky business and things that work one month might not work the next month. You mentioned you get a lot of fan art. That must be really cool. Yeah, that's amazing. There's some really talented people out there and it blows my mind. Like they'll send me fan art and I have to like, right, like, really? Are you sure this is for my book? Because this is really good. Right. <laughs> like, are you sure you didn't just like find this online and like, oh, it looks like it. But oh my goodness, some people are so talented. It just blows my mind. And to see what the characters conceptualized in various mediums is just like, that's been the most rewarding thing too. Is like people spend hours working on these things mm-hmm. and it's just blows me away. Yeah. Definitely. Because you inspired someone else, like in a different way. Yeah, right? yeah, it's just, uh, it's incredible. That's awesome. Okay, so speaking of art, your covers are stunning. Yes. <gasps> oh my goodness. They're just beautiful. Most of the general public isn't aware. The authors have very little input on our cover art. What was your initial reaction? Were those the first run? Were those the first things put in front of you as this is your cover? Or did you have options? So I have totally lucked out with all of my covers and the covers that are on the Snow Like Ashes trilogy were the initial concept. I'm so not a graphic person. So I had no idea what to expect. I had no idea what they were going to put on it. Maybe snow. I I had nothing. Mm -hmm. So when they sent me that concept, I was like, all right, yeah, go with it. Run with it. It sounds great to me. And they hired this amazing artist to do the the actual art for it, Jeff Huang. And he's been fantastic. So he did all the artwork for every book in the Snow Like Ashes trilogy. And then I begged for them to hire him again for These Rebel Waves because I'm just madly in love with him. So in love with all the covers of the series. I get so many people who like pick it up just on the cover alone, which is totally valid. (laughs) They usually try not to encourage people to do that, but like, oh my God, just do it. Because it's an amazing cover. It's an amazing art. And I'm just so blown away by what they were able to pull together for it. The covers are fantastic. And I can tell you, because it was out when I was still working in the library, that it sells the book. It totally does. Oh my goodness. Yeah. The cover sells it more than the story does. That's the cover's job though. They can't discover the story until they've picked up the book. Everybody says don't judge a book by its cover, but honestly, this is the dumbest thing. 
I don't pick up a book unless I like the cover and I do this for a living. So, I mean, (laughs) cover art's like a whole industry in and of itself. You just become so much more aware of the art and you start to pick apart the different covers for the different publishers. And of course, I'm biased, but I think Harper has the best covers. (laughs) Your new fantasy series, The Stream Raiders, which is a duology, releases in August with the first title, These Rebel Waves. Do you intend to stay in your wheelhouse of fantasy or are there plans to branch out to other genres? Pretty committed to fantasy. (laughs) You know, I've thought about writing other genres. I've dabbled in the past with like paranormal. Everything always has to have some kind of element of fantasy for me, some kind of element of magic. I get bored so easily in real life and in writing and in reading and everything. And if things don't have some other fantastical element, I just kind of zone out and clock out early. So if I tried to write a book that didn't have that, I wouldn't be able to get through it. And Mm -hmm. nobody wants to read a book written by an author who's bored of it. Interesting. So then let's talk about fantasy in general, because right now... I would say the past three to maybe five years, fantasy has really exploded within Mm -hmm. YA, and it can be very hard to stand out. And even having gorgeous covers, which you do, pretty much all the YA fantasy covers are, in fact, gorgeous. So we talked a little bit about having a street team and about breaking out. And I do think when Snow Like Ashes came out at, at a time when there was a little more air in the room for fantasy and for new fantasy writers. But do you have any advice for fantasy writers in a crowded market? I was kind of going through this myself with these triple waves coming out in this like super crowded market. Um, I think the one thing that always seems to help no matter how loud the market is, is to have, you know, that really good hook that makes it different. You know, what's different about this book that we haven't seen 50 times before. And it could even be like the same tropes we've seen, but done in a slightly different way, or, you know, something that makes it just a little bit different that gives it that edge that makes people go, Ooh, okay. It could be hard to hone in on what that is for your book. Right now, the big thing seems to be new cultures and things, which is amazing. It certainly isn't a trend by any means. It just should have been happening all along. What hasn't been done before? What hasn't been framed in a certain way? Using that for all it's worth, like with Snow Like Ashes, I really honed in on the whole Season Kingdoms thing and made that like the crux of all of my marketing and all of my everything was, oh, this is the Season book, this book with the Season Kingdoms. Every, like every time anybody said anything about it, yeah, the Season book, like that was what I drilled into people's minds. And easily understandable and people instantly knew what they were getting when they went into it. It stood out a little bit more in the marketplace find that one thing that makes your book prop up on its own that distinctive hook how do you feel about using comp titles or mashups to try to get across the concept do you think that that's something that's useful when you're Um, dealing with fantasy i think it's useful if it makes sense Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, i think a lot of times people throw around comp titles just willy-nilly for snow like ash is like it's game of thrones meets i'm like seriously no it's not it's not it's nothing like game of thrones just if there's something truly unique to the book. Like for these rebel waves, I say it's like the golden age of piracy meets the Spanish Inquisition because I actually drew on those things to when I was writing this book. But a lot of times people throw comp titles around just to get people interested in it. And then they Mm -hmm. go in with these expectations and it's not at all what the comp title said it was going to be. Uh So that can really backfire on you if you use them incorrectly, but they can also be very beneficial. So it's just kind of being honest with yourself in your book about what they really are and not just using Game of Thrones as like a blanket all for fantasy books. That's the truth. Everybody uses Game of Thrones. I was using it for a while for Given to the Sea. I called it Game of Thrones Mm. with less raping and no dragons. I was at a event where I was pitching it. A couple people in the audience had already read it. And I said, 
do you guys have any suggestions? Because they had read it. And this guy said, I would call it the children's games that we played when we were little. He said, I would call it King of the Mountain meets the floor is lava. And I was like, (laughs) oh, my God, that's awesome. So I actually use that now. That's hysterical. Oh, yeah, see that kind of comparison. I would buy a book that mentioned the floor is lava. What? Like you just have to figure out why and what and how. Yeah. Lastly, writing a trilogy versus writing a duology and the unique challenges within each and how to keep multiple POV voices distinct from one another. Nothing But Sky by Amy Trueblood. 18-year-old wing walker Grace will do anything to get to the 1922 World Aviation Expo, even if it means risking her life every day. A thrilling YA historical publisher's weekly calls a post-World War I epoch with visceral period detail. Available in stores now. Let's talk about these rebel waves and the stream raiders. Tell us more about that, about those projects you've got coming up and what the concept is and everything to do with your new series. Yeah. So these rebel waves comes out August 7th and it's my first new book in like two years. Cause I had a break after frost like night. That's a duology. Why a pirate fantasy golden age of piracy meets the Spanish inquisition were my two big inspirations. It's, it's fantasy though. It's not historical fiction at all. Totally fantasy world. So there are three point of view characters, Lou, Ben, and Vex. Vex is the character everyone loves already. He's the snarky pirate character and (laughs) he's wonderful and people will love him. Lou is my quote unquote main character. Um, They all have pretty much equal page time, but Lou was the first one that I really knew her arc of the story and what she was doing. And she is my ex-soldier girl, fighter and a rebel. And she's trying not to be those things in this book because it starts in a time of peace and she's trying to hold on to that peace despite what other forces would have her do. And then Ben is the prince of the antagonistic country and he is the crown prince. So he is destined to take over this country that uh, has kind of feared the world over for running this inquisition against magic, the botanical magic that grows from this one specific island. And so he's starting to question whether or not magic is really is evil because he grew up during a time when his country was kind of accepting of it. And now that they've turned against it, he's starting to wonder why they've turned against it. The first one is called These Rebel Waves. The title of the actual duology is The Stream Raiders. So it is a duology. Yes, just the two, yeah. And how did you make the decision to go with a duology? Because I know that that's kind of big right now. People are avoiding trilogies with going with duologies. So how do you come to that determination? kind of twofold one i after doing this in like ashes trilogy i was like never again <laughs> i'm never ever doing a three book series again because oh my goodness the middle book syndrome was a real true thing <laughs> it was real hard and the second reason was my publisher told me so because <laughs> publishers just generally don't buy trilogies anymore they're kind of leaning away from long series and doing two books at a time so i was like you know what i'll just make it a duology and it worked, you know, kind of squish all the action down and make it a quicker pace and more things happen on less pages. So it it worked out in the end, I think. And as a writer, do you find yourself enjoying that process of writing a duology versus writing a trilogy? I thought it would be a lot easier because unlike a trilogy where the events are all spread out over three books, they're condensed into two. So I thought it would be the arcs would be easier to nail down and everything would be easier to plot. 
I'm working on a second book right now and it's giving me the same headaches <laughs> Ice Like Fire gave me. So maybe it's not as easy, much easier as I thought it would be. I think it's just writing sequels in any capacity, whether it's a duology or a trilogy or a series, just, it's terrible. <laughs> the second books are always terrible. So maybe I just should stop doing series, but everyone I've talked to who does series or trilogies, they hate the sequels. <laughs> just, they never cooperate. They're just difficult children. They are difficult children. So do you find then that the problem of the quote unquote saggy middle book in a trilogy then becomes partially an issue for the second in a duology as well as having the pressure of having to tie up all your loose ends? Yeah, it's a combination of sagging, but also having a lot going on because I've had to condense all the events down into two books. I think it's feeling heavy (laughs) is the thing I'm working with right now is that I'm trying to put too much into it, which is in turn making it sag and drag in its own way. So it's almost the flip where instead of slowing down, it's speeding up too much. It's coming with its own slew of problems. So it's always finding that balance between too much and too little. But did you find any kind of distinction in once again, entering into the world of writing three POVs and trying to make them all distinct from one another while also keeping these characters distinct from your characters in your first trilogy. I think I prefer writing in multiple points of view just to get different facets of the story. And each of the characters in These Rebel Ways luckily were pretty fully formed when I started writing, especially the character of Vex. He's very aware of who he is. (laughs) So that made his point of view much easier to write than the other just because, you know, he was who he was right off the bat. And I'm very much like Mira in that I didn't really have to question too much about what he was doing and what he was saying because he just, he just knew. Ben was the most difficult point of view for me to write just because it took me a long time to figure out his motivations and where he was emotionally in the story and what his beliefs were. And, you know, he has a lot of secrets and he kept them all from me (laughs) for most of the drafts of this book. Lou was, I think, the the biggest challenge was differentiating between Lou and Ben because they both have a similar um, ways of speaking in that, you know, Ben was raised a prince and so he has a very eloquent way of talking and Lou has kind of like a forced eloquence in her speech. Uh, She's trying to be very elevated and trying to be proper lady. So she tries to talk very eloquent and whatnot. So differentiating Lou and Ben's points of view was the most challenging. Uh, Once I figured out what Ben's motivations were, that made things a little easier. Definitely. Well, finding a motivation for a character can really illuminate them for the author. And I think that's something that readers sometimes don't always realize that while they are learning about our characters, while they read and get to know them, we often are undertaking that same journey while we're writing them. Oh yeah, definitely. Usually you start with like, I have a general idea of who this person is and what they want. But as you start writing, you realize like, oh my God, there's so much more behind them that I didn't even know. And it just comes out on page. Like there was so much about all three characters' backstories that I really didn't know until I got deeper into the story. And I was like, oh my goodness, all you poor children. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You had talked about street teams that you used for Snow Like Ashes and that series. So can you talk a little bit about what a street team is, what it does, and how you put one together? Yeah, so the street team general concept is that it's a group of readers slash bloggers slash fans who rally for a book either before or during after when it comes out. 
tend to get advanced copies, like contests to win various prizes, and just generally spread the word about a book, uh, kind of generate buzz and help build uh, publicity. For Snow Like Ashes, I called it the blizzard. For the first book, it started out pretty simple. I just had contests on the first day of every season to tie into the season theme. To join the street team, all they had to do was, you know, like tweet about the contest or change their profile picture to the cover. And as it progressed throughout the series, um, contests got a little bigger and the prizes got bigger. And by the time Frost Like Night came around, my final contest before it came out was uh, this fan art contest where people could make anything Snow Like Ashes themed. And that was just amazing. People did some insane things. They were just wonderful. Like somebody made, I didn't even know this was an art form, but they made a chain mail sculpture kind of of Mira's face. And it was just like the most bizarre thing ever. And it was beautiful and wonderful. Building this community of fans is just amazing started out as you know this way to build publicity for a book but it turns into like this tight-knit group of fans and i love them all (laughs) Mm -hmm. and do you think that the fan art helps with word of mouth and spreads information and builds up enthusiasm about the series I definitely think so. I think especially in today's um, social media world, everything's so visual. So if you get something, some pretty art that reminds people of a book or ties into the story, I think it definitely can draw interest. Do you have any tips for writers about how they can go about putting together a street team? Is that mostly an online? The term street team is a little bit misleading because it's mostly an online endeavor. (laughs) Like I do all of mine through Tumblr and Twitter and like raffle copter contests. So my biggest tips for like, if you want to put together a street team, we just to keep it simple. Um, I've seen a lot of authors do like really elaborate street teams and that's great if you can keep track of it, but it's, that's why I try to keep it as simple as straightforward as possible because like tallying up contest entries and shipping out prizes and stuff, it all adds up the you know, time and costs and money and stuff. So you want to keep it as straightforward as possible also because people have very short attention spans. So if they're going to have to read through pages and pages of contest entry rules and stuff, like, nobody's going to do that. So like for these rebel waves, uh, street team, all they have to do is sign up for the newsletter. And like, that, that's really it <laughs> to join the, the, my street team just by signing up for the newsletter. And because I'll have contests as it gets closer to release and other things like that. So win prizes and like, you can win arcs through the newsletter and stuff like that. Like simplicity is always key. People <laughs> tend to get lost in like wanting to theme things to death, but like having something simple and straightforward and sound bitey and easy to digest, easy to enter, easy to do the easier, the better, because it is such a loud industry that if you can just hook someone really quick and grab them in, that's your best chance of getting them to actually pick up your book. Okay. So where can listeners find you online? sararash.tumblr.com. That has all the information about my various street teams. You know, the one for Snow Like Ashes, which is not super active anymore. And then the one for These Rebel Waves, which is a newsletter and people can sign up and win books and whatnot. And I'm also on uh, Twitter at, at CSarahWright and on Instagram at, at Sarah underscore Rash. Um, and those are the two social media outlets that I do the most. I have like you know, Facebook and other things, but I'm never on it. So if you want to contact me, <laughs> do Twitter or Instagram. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. If you find the podcast or blog helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting GoFundMe.com and searching for Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire. Or visit the blog by going to WriterWriterPantsOnFire.blogspot.com. 
Click on the podcast tab and then the PayPal button. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. Join me next week for another episode of Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where writers talk about things that never happened to people that don't exist.